0: Because it's all about Jesus. Chapter one, Jesus is better. He's a better image bearer, and Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter two, Jesus is a better brother, meaning he is better to uh, accept our weaknesses and to discuss our weaknesses and help us through our weaknesses. And he's also willing to stand for us and fight with us. Jesus is also better than Moses. Chapter three, chapter four. Jesus provides better rest. Chapter 4, also Jesus sits on a better throne because, chapter 5, Jesus is a better king. Chapter, chapter 6, Jesus is a better high priest, a better priest. Therefore, he makes better promises and provides better hope. Chapter 8, Jesus offers a better covenant. Chapter 10, Jesus provides better sanctification or holiness. Chapters 11 and 12, Jesus is a better author of our faith. You may have noticed I missed chapter 9. That's going to be the uh, passage we're going to focus on. Jesus uh, provides better blood. Jesus is the better blood. Um, if you're looking to title uh, our sermon this morning, you may want to write better blood on the top of your note sheet there. So we're going to be looking at the blood of Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus. So let me pray. Please join with me. Jesus, thank you for being better. Thank you for being the fulfillment of all that has gone before in the Old Testament. Thank you for pointing us to The Father, thank you for giving us a relationship with him. And thank you for your blood. Pray that in this time, you would open our ears to hear what you truly want to say to us. That anything that I may say would not impact our thinking, but it would be thrown away. And I pray that you will help us to use what you want to teach us to glorify you and to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in chapter 9. Um, I said we're going to focus on 11 through 14, but I need to sort of go back a little bit and give you some more context, so stay with me. Uh, the first verse, chapter 9, says, um, in my Bible, I'm going to be reading from the ESV Bible. It's just a different translation, so it might sound a little bit different. i um, will we'll later explain some of the differences between some of the translations for you to clear things up. But in my translation, verse 1 says... Even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now, what is the author talking about here? Well, the author is talking about the temple, the temple ritual. This was the practice that these Christians were falling into thinking that that would make them right with God, that that was their worship ritual, that was their practice. It was practiced in the temple. That was where they worshiped God. Um, Herod's temple at this time was 172 feet long, 172 feet wide, and 172 feet tall. Just a massive, massive structure. It had an outer court um, where people could mingle and and make their uh, sacrifices. It also had courts where people could watch and observe, kind of like an office, so to speak. Um, And then within the temple, there was special places called the holy place and the most holy place. And that's where the priest went as he was offering this service. Um, So that's the temple. But the words that are used here in Hebrews refer to the offering that was done in the tent. Now, what the author here is doing, he's bringing us back to the institution, the beginning, the design of what this Herod's temple was set up for. That was back in Exodus when Moses first received the new covenant. God gave him a design and said, make this building after the design that I show you, after the pattern that I show you in heaven. That tent was sort of a mobile church, so to speak, a mobile worship center for the Israelite community. They had to go and set up their Holy of Holies, they had to go and set up the uh, most holy place where they would serve. So, here, the priests are offering sacrifices. They're making offerings for many different things. There are burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, praise offerings, vow offerings, and free will offerings. Now, most of these offerings come... With blood, the sacrifice of an animal. What would happen is the worshiper would take one of their own animals, part of their own uh, resources, and present it to the priest as a sacrifice for their own sin or uh, for their own benefit, for um, some blessing that God was giving them. What they would do is they would place their hand on the head of this animal and say, make a saying, um, confessing whatever sin it was, and that would be a sign as a substitute of their sin, meaning the animal would now be receiving the sin. And so the priest would slay the animal, cut its throat, and spill its blood, take that blood and splatter it all over the altar. The altar was the place where they made the sacrifice. This process made the Israelite community clean. That is what God decided. That's what his commandment was. But the sacrifice system, if you were paying attention, goes back before before God designed it. Because uh, if you remember, the Israelite community, after they got out of Egypt, they were making sacrifices already. They were making sacrifices to false idols. Um, And so it seems to me that Uh, What God was trying to do in setting up this sacrifice of blood was to be establishing limitations for their service, limitations for these sacrifices. So it must go back further. It must go back before um, this pattern to decide what is the meaning of sacrifice. What is sacrifice intended for? So if you were... Um, paying attention, you would remember in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve first sinned, God did this miraculous sign, symbol thing for them. He had to judge and, and penalize them for their sin, but what he did, instead of their coverings, which they made for themselves of figs, God slayed an animal and made a covering for them Of animal skin. You see, sacrifice goes back to God in Genesis. Every sin is forgiven by blood, it must have a substitute. So, those were for um, the intentional sins, or the sins that we know we've committed. What about the things that we do that are wrong that we don't really mean to do or that we don't intend to do, these unintentional sins? Hebrews had, the Jewish people had a way of dealing with these sins also. Uh, The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which you may be familiar with that phrase, was the day that God had established that the people of Israel would make this practice so that God would cleanse them of these unintentional sins. That is the context of what the author here is talking about in Hebrews, this Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is much different than the rest of the ritual sacrifices, the rest of the offerings that were being made. It's different because only the high priest would offer the Day of Atonement sacrifice. The high priest would first have to make an offering for himself, for his own sins. So he would slay an animal, there would be blood everywhere, and, and his, his own self, he would be clean. He would take then another animal and enter into the Holy of Holies. This would be the only time that he would do this once a year. And there, before the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, he would make restitution, he would make a covering, make atonement for the sins of the people, the unintentional sins of the people. Also part of this process is that the high priest would place his hands on another animal, a goat, and he would send that goat off into the wilderness. He would place his hands on the goat as a symbol of the sins of the whole people and send it outside of the camp, away from the presence of God. So, we have a lot of background information, a lot of understanding of what this temple sacrifices, this ritual practice was. So now we can read, starting in verse 11. Hebrews 9 says But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All right, now we're going to take a few minutes and walk through our passage here. First, I want you to notice that this passage begins with Christ. Christ is the main word in in the original language. Um, In uh, my Bible, in the ESV, it says, but, uh, big but. So we have this contrast of the Old Testament rituals, the practices that were being made uh, under the first covenant in the new covenant, but Christ. There's There's a difference, there's a stop here. We must stop what we're doing because of Christ. Um, And and so I I appreciate how it says, uh, but it kind of makes this big transition. I think the NIV misses a little bit bit of that in their translation. It just says when, when Christ. Um, So Christ appeared as a high priest. Now where is Christ the high priest? Jesus Christ was born of the tribe of Judah, meaning he wasn't supposed to be a priest in the um, in the people among the people of Israel, the people of Israel selected the tribe of Levi to be the priest. So, what is Jesus here doing? Uh, doing uh, being a priest? Well, he is the high priest as he entered into heaven. He's a high priest um, that entered into the into the greater and more perfect tent. That is not of this creation. So when Jesus offered himself on the cross and shed his own blood, he went into heaven, into the perfect tent, into the perfect tabernacle, into the perfect holy of holies, into the very presence of God, and there serves as our high priest. Indeed, he continues to live there, making intercession for us, and thus saving us. Uh, Verse 12, He entered once and for all into the holy places. Uh, I like the um, NIV translation here. It identifies this place as the most holy place. Yes, Jesus was a high priest and did the whole rituals literally in heaven. He, He made the whole process that the high priest must go through into the holy places, the most holy place he entered. And Jesus entered once for all. You see, the high priest had to do this every year and on the Day of Atonement. The priests had to make their sacrifices daily. Um, so that means there's blood every day, everywhere, um, spilt in the temple. It's kind of a loud, messy, dirty place. But Jesus in heaven makes the perfect sacrifice once and for all. And he does this not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. How how did Jesus offer his own blood? How did that literally happen? Um, Because blood is very important. What, What did... What was Jesus' process to offer himself? Did he have to, um, you know, cut his wrist and, and there spill it on the altar before God? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that that's what this passage is trying to get at. It's not trying to make us think about the process. It's trying to get us to think about the facts, the fact that Jesus did what he did, offering himself to God, and God accepted it, accepted this precious blood. And what was the outcome of this blood? What was the working of this blood? The blood of the goats and the bulls would only temporarily make these people holy, only temporarily make the Israelite community clean. They had to make their sacrifices again and continually do it over and over and over again. Jesus' blood secured an eternal redemption. You see, God had a plan from the very beginning to redeem man. God saw Adam and Eve commit a sin, and he made a plan. He said, I am going to offer my son Jesus as a sacrifice for them, and his blood will cleanse them. So in Jesus' blood, we have a secure, eternal redemption. That means today, if we believe in Jesus' blood, we are living in our eternal redemption. We get to enjoy our eternal redemption um, in heaven. And today, here and now, we can live out our eternal redemption with Christ abiding in his blood. Verse 13, moving along. This is where it gets into uh, what I believe is the most um, powerful, the most complete part of this text. It begins with a conditional statement, um, at least in in my translation and in in the text of uh, the original text. says, if the blood of goats and bulls, it's a condition, if. Um, I believe that NIV makes it more of a a statement and it is a statement, um, but I believe the condition of the statement paints a, a better picture. So, we have verse 13. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So if it does those things. If the Old Testament rituals really do what we want them to do. Um, now he's kind of, the author here is kind of speaking of our conscience. Um, I like how the NIV says it. Um, it says it makes them... Um, made holy for service instead of the purification of their flesh. And so, um, literally what the blood did for the Hebrew community, for the Israelite community, was clean them, make them clean. On the outward, they looked like they had it all together. That was their process. You commit a sin, all right, here's the goat, let's slit its throat, sprinkle some blood on the altar, and then I'm good to go. On the outside, everything looked okay. Okay. Uh, and they could do this day after day after day, committing the same sins over and over and over and over again but but literally, if it does that, if the blood of the bo- goats and bulls, if it literally does that, if it makes them holy what 's going on on the inside they have no they have no reason to think of something better. Now we get to verse fourteen In verse fourteen packs. The most potent theological doctrinal concepts of this text it begins, how much more? And that's, that's where this conditional statement lies. If the blood of goats does this, how much more does the blood of Christ do this? So how, how much more? We need to think about this conditional analogy how, how much more? We have, okay, this blood cleans us on the outside, and now how much more does Jesus' blood clean us? How much more? Um, I have a question for you. How much more would you like to be clothed with a T-shirt and jeans today or clothed with a big parka, <laughs> right? Um, how, much, how much more would you like... Um, some of those little hand warmers, foot warmers? Or how much more would you like an entire body suit? Uh, Let's say you had had a debt to pay. How much more would you like me to pay your debt or would you like Bill Gates to pay your debt? How, How much more? As we get into this text, we need to think about how much more, how are we valuing the blood of Christ? Peter, um, if you may, may, you may remember Peter, the apostle, he was against Jesus um, dying. He was against Jesus shedding his own blood. He did not think that it was necessary. Jesus, what are you going to crucify yourself? Even if you go do that, I will be there with you. That's Peter. Peter eventually learned, humbled himself. Uh, in 1 Peter, Jesus' blood is described by Peter as precious is better than silver and gold. Jesus' blood was the blood that purchased Peter, was the blood that purchased him. It was his ransom. The blood of of Christ, the blood of Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is seen as pictured as the agent that cleansed the robes of those worshipers who were calling out worthy to the Lamb who was slain. Literally, they made their robes white in the blood of Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ, and here we get to, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now, this is where we get into the process. We want to say, well, how did, how did Jesus do this? Well, he must have done it in heaven, but what did he do? Literally, how did he do that? Um, now, I have a question for you. How is it that the Holy Spirit lives in you? What, literally, how does he do that? Um, here, we see that Jesus Christ offers himself through the eternal spirit. I believe that what Jesus did is so far above our comprehension. We wouldn't be able to explain it or try to understand it other than accept as fact that Jesus' blood offered himself and his blood to God. Um, also, what I want you to note here is that the Trinity is present within the sacrifice of Christ. The Trinity is present within the sacrifice of Christ. Jesus, yes, had to offer himself. He chose to do it, but the Holy Spirit is present and is an offering to God. Also important, Jesus, his blood was without blemish. You see, when the Israelites wanted to pick uh, a, an animal to sacrifice, their goal or what, what God had directed them to do was to select an animal that was without blemish, without spot. That, that signified that this animal was more pure, more clean. Um, and thus, when they transferred, the, when they substituted their sins onto the animal, it would make them more clean. And here we read that Christ's blood is without blemish. So we follow, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, here's where I want to spend uh, some more of our time. I believe there are three things we can pull out of these few words, out of this part of the passage. What is the value of Christ's blood? What does He, in His blood, do for us? First, Christ's blood is a cleaning agent. The word here in my translation is purify. Some translations say cleanse. In other translations it says purge. Literally what Christ's blood does for us, it serves as a cleaning agent. Now I don't know how many of you um, buy supplies to clean your house, but um, in your cabinets is there blood. Is that, <laughs> is that a good cleaning agent? I'm not quite sure we picture blood as a good cleaning agent. We kind of think of blood as dirty, as unclean. You know, we don't want to talk about it. Uh, Maybe we've been seeing uh, so many violent acts on TV, and we're just kind of, we just kind of don't want to think about blood. Uh, But literally, what Jesus' blood does for us is it cleanses us, it purifies us, So Jesus' blood is a cleaning agent. Next, Jesus' blood is also a moving agent. Jesus' blood takes us from one spot and makes us go into another spot. It's a moving agent. It helps us take all of our stuff, bring it from where we are, and bring it to where we need to be. That's what uh, this passage is explaining. The words from and to are directional. It's from one spot away from that spot into another spot and two, literally, into another spot. And so what are these spots that Christ's blood is moving us into and away from? First, we know that God, in Christ Jesus' blood, is moving us away from our dead works. Um, I appreciate the NIV translation better. It says... um, the works that lead to death. Um, some translations go so far as to say that these are sinful works. Um, I don't think that that's what the text is trying to get. at. I don't think it's necessarily saying sinful works. It's saying the works that lead to death. Um, now, you probably, if you've been around uh, the bridge long enough, you've probably heard Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. And so, yes, uh, sin is a work that leads to death. But I think what the author is trying to explain here further is that this legalistic system, that this ritual offering, that the blood of anything other than Jesus only works death. So Jesus in his blood is a moving agent that moves us away from our dead works, from our works that only lead to death. What does it move us into? Uh, Next, it moves us to serve. It moves us to serve. Now, I think this is uh, very interesting because this whole concept that we're talking about is is worship. We're really talking about what's the difference between Old Testament worship and, and New Testament, New Covenant worship. In the New Covenant of Christ's blood, He literally moves us into a state of worship, into a state of service. Now, how do, how do, I, how do I get that? How do I say that uh, this worship is service? We, we like to think about worship as singing songs and, and playing instruments, and yes, that is part of God-given, God-given worship, but the whole process is meant to serve God, to follow God's commands. In the Old Testament, they did that by following His commands, and offering the blood of bulls and goats. And in the new covenant, in Jesus' blood, we can constantly remember Christ's blood. We can constantly apply it to our lives as we worship him through song, through our giving, through our love for one another, through our work with our hands or our minds. We can serve God because of what he's done for us in moving us to this place in his blood. And so l- lastly this third point God in his in the blood of Jesus acts as the living agent of our relationship with Christ. God in his blood, Jesus in his blood acts as the living agent of our relationship You see, in the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, the relationship that they had with God was split. It was severed. And so when God offered, when God sacrificed the blood of that first animal, he made their relationship right. You see, blood is a constant reminder of relationship. It's not just a ritual. It's not just a performance It's not just a thing that we do to to get by, to make our performance and our worship seem adequate. Blood, the purpose of blood, is the restoration, the redemption, the reconciliation of a relationship. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, God cannot have a relationship with us in the presence of sin. Now, we know that we commit intentional sins. We know when we do things consciously that are wrong and we can confess those things. But what about the things that we unintentionally do? What about the things that we do wrong just because we're human and we're broken and we're still in the process of becoming more like Jesus? Here the author tells us that the living blood of Jesus, that the blood of Jesus is the living agent for our relationship. And this relationship is a relationship of grace. When God sacrificed the lamb, sacrificed the animal um, to cover Adam and Eve, it was a constant reminder to them of the power, the penalty of sin. And they couldn't get away from it. They wore this animal skin. They had to wear it. It was a constant reminder of Um, they could have been this animal. They could have been slain for their sin. They could have spilled their own blood for this sin, but instead God in his grace decided to slay an animal and clothe them with it. It was a constant reminder. They were to carry around literally the grace of God with them on their skins, on their bodies. So I ask you, what do you clothe, clothe yourself with? Are you clothing yourself with your robe dipped in the blood of the Lamb? Are you moving from your works that lead to death, be it sin, be it some ritualistic performance, some legalistic structure that you keep doing over and over and over again that you think is making you right with God, but literally is is not it's just a pattern. Are you moving away from those dead works to serve God? And lastly, are you experiencing a clean conscience? Now, I want to share with you a little bit of, of my story. I became a, a believer at the age of 10. I had a good friend who had passed away um, due to a brain tumor. And I knew that and he had started coming to church, and I, I knew that he was that he was different. Through this experience with his brain tumor, he began to change, and coming to church, he began to change, um, and when he died, my parents explained to me that he went to heaven, and I thought, oh man, he's going to heaven. I want to see him again someday. I need to go to heaven, and so my parents explained to me that I just need to trust in Jesus' death for me, and then I will go to heaven. So that's what I did. I trusted in Jesus' death for me, and And I thought, okay, I'm good to go. I'm good to go to heaven. It was kind of like um, Jesus was my get-out-of-hell-free card. (laughs) I didn't want to go to hell. I wanted to go to heaven to, you know, experience what heaven was like. Um, But as I was living, I was going to church. Um, Occasionally I prayed. Um, Very seldom I read my Bible, unfortunately, but I, I was doing those things. And what I was experiencing was an impure conscience I had uh, many impure thoughts. I was following those to do many um, wicked things. Following to college, um, I began experiencing God in a new way. Began to take my relationship with Him more seriously. Began to be devoted to reading the Bible. Tried doing it by myself at first, but I found that that I uh, wasn't good enough. I needed a community of believers to encourage me, to help me understand um, who I am and, and who God is and how I can have a relationship with him. So I began m- participating in a Bible study. But still, um, I would have these impure thoughts. I would have um, thoughts that were just n- just not good, not of God. Um. This process went on for a long time. I, I performed and I acted kind of like I had it all together. I did, um, I did religion well. I did Christianity well. Um, I, I was leading Bible studies, and I was helping evangelize people, and I was praying with people, and I was doing a number of really, really good things. On the outside, it looked very good, but on the inside, I knew that something was just not right. Something was, was missing. My conscience, you see, not, not just my mind, I knew all the answers to everything, and not just my heart, I really felt it, but my conscience, this whole center of who I was, was still a battle within me, was still a fight that I needed to fight. <clears throat> and that fight ended when I realized the depth of God's love for me. See, when Jesus was uh, performing the last supper with his disciples, this uh, celebration of his death. Um, he explained to his disciples what what love was really about, what love was really about. He said, "Greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends john fifteen thirteen greater love has no man than this that he lay down his life for his friends for the first time. I realized in my conscience. It was changed in who I was that I couldn't just love, I couldn't just perform uh, Christian good deeds. Um, They were really just works that led to death until I recognized, confessed my sin, and accepted the purification, the cleansing of my conscience, the cleansing of my soul, the cleansing of who I was because of Jesus' death, for me, I literally had to apply His blood to myself. That doesn't mean that since that time I've been I've been perfect. Um, I still fall in many ways, and I'm still a work in progress. Um, but I've continually learned as I want to overcome sin, as I want to work to live a holy, good life. I cannot just purify my conscience with the right teaching or with understanding the right things. I can only purify my conscience by the blood of Christ, by His death, by coming before Him and accepting His perfect work on the cross. So I want to offer you a challenge, an application as, as you move forward from today, will, will, you, will you quit will you quit doing the Old Testament rituals? Will you quit doing these works that lead to death? Will you stop being legalistic? Um, and will you see Jesus' blood as the purification for your conscience? Will you see Jesus' blood? as the way that you can live in holiness, that you can live in righteousness, and that you can live in a way that ushers in the grace of God in your relationship with Him. So that's one application. The second application um, of our message this morning is to participate in communion with one another. Um, So I invite those who are going to serve with me to come forward. And I want to remind us of a couple things about um, communion. Communion is important because the blood of Jesus is important. Like the blood of Jesus is central to our conscience, to purifying our conscience. The blood of Jesus is a, is central to the act of being a Christian, to being a part of a Christian community. The Bible indicates that we need to reflect. We need to take time to examine ourselves. So if you believe in the blood, in the death of Jesus, to cover your sins, to be a substitute for your sins, uh, then I I invite you in this time to take a few minutes to examine yourself. Examine your relationship with God. Are you you living in a state of of grace in the purification of your conscience? Or have you been living in, in dead works? For those of you who have yet to place your faith in Jesus, for those of you who are still not sure how all this pictures and works together, I beg you to consider Jesus. Consider what he has done and consider how much better he is, how much better his blood is. And consider that Jesus is now in heaven making intercession for us. The blood of Jesus is important because Jesus says that whoever eats my blood, whoever drinks my blood, excuse me, who eats my, bre- eats my body and drinks my blood lives. Uh, now, some people want to make that say that we are, in our service of communion, we are literally being cannibalistic or eating God's flesh and drinking his blood. I don't know that anybody really has ever done that. Um, what Jesus is talking about is that this is a symbol, it is done as an act of remembrance of what he has done. So let's take a few minutes and remember what Jesus did quietly and and examine yourselves. Um, I'm going to pray after a few minutes, and then you can come up and participate in communion.